So I'm not going to lie. I love lists as much as the next person, but sometimes I feel like they're the biggest cop out in a content creator's arsenal, but I'm about to do one. <laughs> You're listening to XP Hunter. Welcome back, Hunters. It's good to see that you were well on your travels. I see a lot of you have gained new levels, gained XP, and right are on the cusp. Welcome back, Hunters. It's great to see you guys again. It looks like a lot of you have leveled up since we last spoke to each other. Uh, I've leveled up too. You know, it. we're already in NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. And as I told you guys last episode, uh, you know, I've, I'm well on my way writing Homecoming, still tentatively called that. Maybe by the end of this, I'll have a new title, but it's going well. You know, the characters are really coming to shape the story. It's really fleshing, fleshing out. Uh, and I'm super satisfied with it, which is not something I say very often, guys. I am wholly, usually very dissatisfied with life, but I'm feeling really good right now. So like I said, I like to keep my lists to a minimum. So I usually do one every season. Uh, so this is my top five for the season. So I hope you guys are excited. Uh, since, you know, it's in a remo, obviously we're going to do books, my top five books of all time. And to be fair, this is one of the very, very um, subjective lists or tentative lists. Like um, this can change at any time, uh, kind of depending on like the mood I'm in or, you know, the kind of media I've been consuming at the time. So Obviously, we're going to start at number five and my number five book of all time. And I know you guys are going to be like, what? What a waste of like space. But Don't Be Afraid of the Dark by Guillermo del Toro. And I think the guy's last name is Chuck. I don't remember his first name, but uh, I'm sure you guys are all thinking by now of the uh, of the movie that came out. Don't Be Afraid of the Dark with uh, Katie Holmes that uh, it was I mean, it wasn't amazing. It was. Ugh. I don't want to call it bad. It wasn't bad. It was okay. But I can definitely tell you that the story that was in um, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark uh, was definitely way, way better than whatever happened in the movie. So um, if you don't know anything about uh, the premise of the movie or the book, uh, the premise for Don't Be Afraid of the Dark is that uh, fairies are real. Um, and so in the movie, you, you know, you follow a family who moves into a home and the, the father is like a developer so he moves into the home he fixes it he sells it bleh uh and he has a son so his son is there and you know the mother and father aren't together and you know weird stuff starts happening in the house like it obviously it's like this neo-gothic dark everywhere dark wood red carpets you know it's just it's dreary and you know stuff starts happening with a kid and there are like fairies that end up attacking the kid and so in the book, which I think is way, 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 way better, it follows the story of Lord Blackwood, who is the original owner of the house in Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Author is Chris Christopher Golden and Guillermo del Toro. OK, so uh, Lord Blackwood is a part of obviously one of the snooty, snooty uh, Royal Academy of Sciences researchers, whatever. And so Lord Blackwood is you know he's a scientist a researcher and obviously he's a part of like you know the royal academy of researchers blah 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 um but what what is really interesting in the story is you know he is a scientist and so 
like I said uh, a bunch of times before in science or science fiction, like there has to be some science in there. Uh, he doesn't believe in like fairies or ghosts or, you know, stuff that we can't prove exists or happens. And so he moves into a home that he bought for his wife. They have a kid and in the backyard, he kind of finds like this ring of mushrooms and he's like, what's happening here? And you know, while it could be natural, he's like, meh, and he ends up, um, breaking it. And if you don't know anything about, uh, fairy folklore, and I think this is mostly rooted in um, Western European folklore. So like English, Scottish, Irish. Uh, it's a fairy ring, right? And fairy rings are portals that they use between our world and their world. Uh, and so he breaks it. And you're not ever supposed to break a fairy ring because that makes you the enemy. Uh, and so things start happening in his home. And he starts to get kind of like afraid. He's like, well, what's this? What's happening? He uh, finds a... a a body of something and I don't want to call it a Fiji mermaid but it you know he finds the body of a fairy he brings it to the Royal Academy of Snooty Scientists and they you know they laugh him out of the academy because they're like this is not science this is obviously like some fake that someone put together which to be fair happened a lot back in the time that the book is set in and so he goes off on a journey because he's like no I'm not crazy I know that I'm intelligent I know that I did my due diligence and research this and did an autopsy and I know that this is not fake and so he goes on a journey across the world to try and catalog fairies and so that's one of the cool things about it because it's a travelogue and it has um it has uh, drawings and you know they're very like dark draw drawings because this is like a neo-gothic period in history and so everything's kind of dark and um it's all like charcoal drawings and, and it's really good artwork as well but it also tells you about what these fairies are and what they do you know like um there are, you know, unseely and seely, right? There are good and evil fairies. Um, and he comes across a lot of like, he comes up a lot of unseely or evil fairies through his journeys. But also one of the great journeys, um, one of the best fairies that he came across was a brownie. And a brownie is like a little household fairy and it will clean and cook and do stuff for you. And all you have to do is leave it cream. And like every day, I just wish that brownies were real. But they do have a dark side because if you don't, if you treat them wrong, if you take that from granted, if you don't give them their cream, they will come for you. So watch out. <laughs> but I really like the novel because unlike the the movie, which I kind of felt was like trite, like it introduced like a really great subject matter, which is fairies and not fairies and like they're cute. Um, oh, they, you know, they have these great wings and they flit about and, you know, like their Tinkerbell kind of side. It had like their real side, right? Because it's kind of like a, whenever there's something serious, we always feel this need to sugarcoat it. Kind of like mermaids, right? It's like, oh, the little mermaid really loved the prince. When in real life, mermaids are vicious creatures that kill and rape men. What I really liked about it is that it introduced the tooth fairy, right? They're, they're called bloody gums or tooth fairies. And what they actually do is they subsist on the milk teeth of of children because those teeth are like I, I don't know they taste better I guess but uh it just came it he even finds documentation from like the Vatican or whatever saying that they made a deal with these particular fairies that said instead of kidnapping kidnapping their children and just killing the kids and eating their teeth they would wait for the teeth to fall out of the children's mouths and they would put it under the pillow for the two fairies to take and they would leave them money and I was like that is an amazing idea for the trope or the the fairy tale of the tooth fairy like that's so imaginative the story really doesn't the movie doesn't really do that story justice but the book does because the guy goes in search of it and he finds it he finds it everywhere he goes to japan he goes to norway he goes to all these different countries and he finds these these fairies 
that, you know, they've been around in folklore for a long time, but he finds proof of them. And that's that's the biggest. Uh, that's what I like the most. He's like the the fears that we have. Right. Like the title of the book is Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. And he the story basically goes about expressing to you that fear is not your enemy. Right. Like you're afraid of things for a reason. Right. So it's like, don't be afraid of the dark. Know what's there, but don't not fear it. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> I'm explaining this poorly, but I like it because it brings together things that we would consider now in the 21st century. We would we would consider it nonsense. Like there is no scientific proof for any of these things you know um just folk tales and old wives tales and so the thing is in in the cusp of the story yeah he finds actual scientific proof which would be amazing but that scientific proof doesn't actually it doesn't um knowing or having that proof doesn't protect him from you know all the things that the fairies can do from him knowing that information it doesn't protect him but it prepares him so he's not afraid of the dark he knows what's in it but he is not protected from him it just gives him like a reason not to be afraid it doesn't mean he doesn't feel fear number three is 2030 the truth of what happens to america so this book is on here tentatively just because i i really like not old history so this isn't kind of fall into art history because it's technically in the future right to 2030 um but i really like it because it's not it's not like a revisionist history it's not idealistic it's semi down to earth everything that happens in it i feel is very realistic so the basic trope behind the the story which is fiction obviously because no one knows the future as far as we know uh is that sometime around now or slightly before now actually um someone finds a cure for heart disease and then cancer and so people start living longer and so by 2030 you aarp is one of the top like companies in america they have so much sway because there are so many older people and so if you know about the age like index you know that in a population um like in america you know that baby boomers are the largest generation to have happened in america in a long time right um and they're all getting older right so right now our index looks kind of like an hourglass because baby boomers were such a large generation so their line reaches out very very far and then it keeps going down because people had less kids, you know, um, stuff like that. And then it balloons out again because millions of children, hundreds of thousands of children are born every day. And so um, it looks like that. But uh, now in 2030, it looks much more like a mushroom cloud, right? You have all these older people. And as you go down in years, in generations, it gets smaller and smaller because less children are born because... A, children are already expensive, right? But imagine a world where there there was a generation of so many people that like there wasn't enough money to go around for people to get even loans, not just scholarships, but loans to go to college. So that's where they're at. Um, there are just so many people living to the ripe age of like 120, 150, that the system that we've created, that we live by for... Um, mm, when was the last time we revamped this thing we call America? It was a long time ago, but in we'll say in the last 70 years, a system that we've built of, you know, taxation and, you know, so forth, it, it can't support it because it was never meant or it was never created with the idea that there would ever be that many people using it at one time, right? So social security is also an issue, all that stuff. Um, 
So the story follows the president who <laughs> who is Jewish, which is interesting, right? Because if you know anything about our cis presidential system, there has never been a president who wasn't Protestant or there was one JFK. But for the most part, they have all been Protestant Christians. We've never had a Jewish or Muslim or anything like that president. So he's a Jewish president and he himself is very old. His mother is still alive. So he's like 70, 80 or something. And his mother is still alive. And uh, it follows him. So it follows the very elderly president. It follows a grand uh, a man who is elderly his he's a grandfather uh, I mean he has a daughter his daughter and you know obviously the daughter is part of a revolution because she wants to go to college and you know her father's old and so it's not to say that there aren't any diseases I mean like as you get older you know if you use something over and over again you know it starts to wear out so you know he still has normal old people issues you know college car the cartilage in his knee isn't great uh, he's also a security guard, and so he gets uh, attacked at his job and uh, hurt. And so the medical bill for it, his insurance doesn't cover it, even though he has insurance. Um, and so it just talks about all those issues. And then on top of that, uh, a natural disaster happens in, Ca in California. And so the insurance companies are like, we don't have enough money to pay all these people for their insurance because it's most of California that was hit. And so then obviously you have China who's like, oh, we could help. Um, and it's not really the government. It's actually a private business owner who's like, oh, I could help. But, you know, we're always like, you want to help us? Why? You don't like us. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on. But obviously, you know, China in the book is still very much a high competitor uh, with America, even though, I mean, everyone talks about China being the second largest economy in the world. They've been the second largest economy in the world for the last 70 years, but it's fine, whatever. But they're still kind of neck and neck with, with America. And um, even though we've accepted their help in this reality, reality in our reality, reality, we've accepted the help before. The the idea the president doesn't want to accept help from China because he doesn't want to be indebted to them, which makes a lot of sense. Um, but also, there are people who a who young people who feel like they have no future because they're never going to go to college or be educated enough to do any of the jobs that the older people who are living way way longer are still occupying because they also can't get a good deal on their insurance or on retirement in order to retire and so it's just uh i like it because it just shows the compounding of the issues in american uh in the american political system and cultural system that we keep saying there's a problem but we never fix it and so this just shows um how culmination of all the issues all the little teeny leaks that we just keep plugging are just gonna implode this ship or implode this sub that we're all on together because we keep saying we're gonna fix it and we don't we let insurance companies have too much leeway or too much power to extort basically extort money from people um we didn't create after we saw that there was this giant generation of people um who are now going to be living long, longer than they would have and then that that's going to put a tax on our 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 financial system and how we do things and then there was a natural disaster on one side of the country and then you know like all that stuff built on top of itself to make an overarching issue and it's not the end of the world right because this really just affects america you know and and it never presents it at the, as the end of the world it just presents it as this issue that's happening in america it's like this is the truth this is what happened this is what happened after we didn't fix all the things we needed to fix because we thought we knew better because we thought it could wait uh and so i really like that i like when people take a critical um 
nonpartisan look at what could happen to America if it doesn't fix its issues. Mind you, it's a work of fiction, so anything could happen, but it's very intelligently written. Uh, okay. So at number three is 1984 by George Orwell. And so if you know anything about the books he writes, um, they're almost always going to be um, about the political or socioeconomic uh, systems uh, of the time. And so it's a dystopian novel. Uh, and it basically, um, it basically tells the story of a highly like stratified uh, country. Uh, the story is a dystopian fiction. Uh, and it basically um, tells about the year 1984 in an alternate reality um, where the world's kind of fallen into like this perpetual war and like the big brother state um, and uh, how do you say uh, historical revisionism and propaganda. Um, so uh, it takes place uh, in uh, like a super state. So just imagine like if all of New England was like one big state. So it takes place in like a super state, they call it, uh, called Oceana. Okay, so there are three classes or um, hierarchies in Oceana. Uh, so there's the upper class, inner party, the elite ruling minority who make up 2% of the population, the middle class, the outer party who make up 13% of the population, and the lower class or the pro proletariat who make up 85% of the population and represent the uneducated working class, right? So um, there are also, there's also another like lower class called the not unpersons, which, um, you know, they're like written out of history and it's like they never existed. Uh, so, uh, the story just, uh, follows the character as he's like going through this alt reality, this society. And, um, he's actually a part of the middle class, the, the, the outer party. Uh, and he works in the Ministry of Truth for the government, uh, where the Ministry of Truth is where they revise like history, where they take people, people's like birth certificates and their, you know, high school diplomas and stuff. And they like incinerate it along with them. And I just like it because it, it shows like society. I think a lot of times we're just very much in the mind of this is how things are. And I'm like, things change all the time. And imagine in even today, like you know, if you walk down the street, you're going to get caught on at least 500 cameras. Um, and the thing is, is that a lot of people are like, oh, Big Brother is bad. And I'm not saying it's not. But the thing is, they they like having access to, you know, watch people's live streams. And yeah, that person voted to do that live stream. But the thing is that you voted to watch like you you wanted to watch. And so you're mad because the government wants to watch you but you're also afraid of terrorists and you know there's not a lot of give and take in how people understand how technology is used and a lot of times it's like we're not actively looking at what we want to do like I know a few years ago um Texas uh kind of petitioned uh McGraw Hill who publishes a lot of the textbooks for uh middle and high school and they wanted them to take certain words out like they wanted to take out um imperialism from one of the history books in in connection with America. And so the issue came up that like, the issue was that if Texas wanted their books to be that way, that's fine. But the issue is that Texas is the largest buyer of the books. And so when McGraw-Hill makes a book and they make these changes for Texas, the odds are that those books are gonna go to other states as well. And again, uh, like in 1984, it's revisionist history because America, while it came into it, it's like, greatest amount of power um 
during imperialism but like at the end of it like we didn't get a good like grasp of a lot of stuff because america was so young but we were imperialistic i mean we were trying to do land grabs that's why you have american samoa that's why you you know what i mean you have the u.s virgin islands and stuff like that and so i mean hell that's kind of why we have alaska even though that happened way after our technical imperialism portion of our history even today we still practice imperialism it's just now it's not land grab imperialism right it's not colonization it's uh it's cultural uh, it's cultural imperialism basically the book follows a society like that that has figured that you know the only way is our way and if you don't want to do it our way then you're nobody you're nothing kind of thing um and having such a tight control on everything that happens from what people do and say and see and read and consume and so um it really i like analyzing how you know the easiest route or the route that you think is going to be the most effective is almost always going to be the most detrimental uh because i think a lot of people don't think of it all the way through right they're like well that's the best way because we want this to happen and i was like okay so you do that and this happens what happens after that a lot of people aren't thinking that because they think that once they reach that goal once they've complete accomplished what they wanted that everything else after that is going to be amazing and i'm like that's not how <laughs> that's not logical uh forthright thinking but uh 1984 by george orwell if you've never read it which i'm sure you have because i'm sure it's been on reading lists for like ever I think it was on the banned book list like way before I was born, like before the 80s. But you can go and get a copy now or you can, you know, find a banned copy that I'm sure someone has. Um, but if you'd like, check it out. It's I think it's particularly great. Uh, number two, uh, I would just say the collective words of H.P. Lovecraft. I know that's kind of <laughs> a cop out, right? Not to pick one. But uh, when I first discovered H.P. Lovecraft, I was kind of like, oh, I hate exposition. Gosh, show don't tell. That's like literally the golden rule of writing. Like show me, don't tell me, you know, like it shouldn't be exposition telling me that it was a dark and stormy night. It should be a character complaining to their best friend that they locked them out of the car and the umbrellas in the car. And they're, you know, there's like cat sized raindrops falling on them and they just got their hair done and they're pissed. Right. Like that character is showing me that it's raining because they're mad their hair is all messed up and wet instead of the some narrator or whoever is telling me that it's raining um so uh when I first I when I heard about him I was like oh I guess I'll give it a chance and at the time I worked at a bookstore which was amazing and so I bought a, a book of his collected works and for the most part you're always going to find his works that way because he wrote a lot of novellas he didn't really write novels that wasn't his thing um, but I read In Smith Horror, which uh, if you guys haven't listened to the other episodes this season, uh, is when it is this is the basis for a game I'm playing right now called The Sinking City, which you can check out. Just search it online. Uh, it's really good. It's very um, psychological thrillery. It's great. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously he's he's where the Cthulhu uh, kind of the great old ones, the, the great old gods uh, came from he's a creator of those and what I liked about his writing what I liked about his collective works is that it's never he is he writes expositionally but it's he also shows and doesn't tell right so the exposition is always kind of like an inner monologue of a character or someone who's obviously like a narrator someone who's telling you that story but even though it's exposition it still feels like he's showing you something um there's also a story color out of space which is so good and at first i was like oh this is so silly um what is like you know 
someone who was born like the 1920s or 30s know anything about space um, um but it's it's really good because it's kind of like the monster you can only see out of the corner of your eye you know and the thing is like i say monster and, and a lot of times in his stories it is an actual physical physical monster or a demon or great old one space creature thing but there's also the idea that like the creature out of the corner of your eye is is you it's it's a person it's it's not just this unnameable unspeakable horror it's sometimes just other people and also there's a story why can't i remember it there's a story that's based in boston it's based in the north end um that i really like that part of me wanted to base my nano remo novel on it um and then the name of it is escaping me right now but what i really loved about it was that the basic gist is a story spoilers if you've never read hp lovecraft um, but as two friends, one is wealthy ish and his friend is an artist. And so he goes to visit his, visit his friend and his friend is John is like, uh, horrible and not horrible and that like awful as in like, uh, like, it's just so shocking that you have no words for it. It's just it in, uh, he's drawn a painting of, uh, essentially what you can call a demon, and it's just so awe-inspiring for him that he buys it. It's so haunting. He buys it and he brings it to his house. And he asks his friend, like, where did you get inspiration for this? And he's like, oh, you know, he's very, like, non-committal to an answer. And so, obviously, it leads into a deep, dark basement. And, you know, he feels unease. And then he realizes that his friend has drawn it from a picture and not from, like, his mind. And so, he's like, where did you see this thing? In a basement in the North End. And so... I really like his stories because they're not, they're so far removed from how people tell horror now. Now it's all jump scares and, you know, sickly looking girls with their wet hair over their face and jump scares. And it's just, it's very cheap nowadays. Whereas his is very much about like the psychological part of what makes us afraid. You know, I mean, because yes, seeing you know, a half headless person with their eyes, one of their eyes popped out and like blood running down their mouth or their body. Like that's horrifying. Yeah. It's really scary. But the really scary part is that what really scares us about ghosts or stuff like that is that we can't affect it. We have no active way of protecting ourselves or doing any, anything about it. And in the stories that he tells, whether it is a great old one, a great old God, you know, being revived or, you know a town trying to protect themselves by like intermingling with the old gods or someone who literally you're not sure if they're just going crazy or if this is really happening it it's it just wells up in you that like you have no control here that there is something deep and dark that's going to come for you and that you cannot fight it and so i really like that about hp lovecraft uh, novellas uh, and if you want to learn more about hp lovecraft or read his books like you know drop by your local bookstore check him out um and for my number one favorite book that's how that's why it's unclaimed because like i said books become come in and out of favor with me all the time i try to stay stable right but like there are sometimes in, in you know my life where how i'm feeling where i'm like oh that book was great but like it's not in my top five because i hate how they portrayed blah 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 um so it's always changing uh, just like us as people. That's why we're here. That's why I'm an XP hunter. That's why you're an XP hunter because we're trying to go out and get XP, gain XP, level up and be more. And so, uh, you know, as I learn more, as I experience more, 
how I feel changes. Uh, so if you guys want to let me know some of your favorite books, or if you guys are going to be writing a book for NaNoWriMo, you can call me, call me. You guys can email me at xvhunterlee at gmail.com or send me a direct message. And I will, you know, we can discuss, you know, I love H.P. Lovecraft, but some of you might think that his writing is trait and that it's not scary at all because, you know, there's no, you know, there's no creepy dead girl in the, in the attic. So, uh, in the meantime, in between time, guys, do it for the XP. See you.